0: We come back together this morning. We are in the first chapter of Acts. Uh, we're going to look at uh, Luke's description of who's in the upper room this morning. And remember, we're talking about uh, the book of Acts as a declaration of a, of a revolution uh, that Jesus' kingdom is established. That Jesus is king of not only the universe in an abstract fashion, but king of the world. And he is establishing that kingdom by the work of his people through the work of the Holy Spirit. And uh, we've, we've had several weeks getting ready for the Holy Spirit. Next week is Pentecost, and of course we'll talk about the amazing uh, gift of the Spirit poured out in that upper room next week. But in preparation for that, I wanted to talk about what the implications are because what we have in this revolution is a revolution in the very way that humanity interacts with one another because humanity is now restored to its understanding of everyone being created in the image of God. Jesus is about the business of breaking down cultural barriers, racial barriers, gender barriers, that define us on the basis of things that are not the image of God. They may be a part of who we are and the way we're uniquely created, but our identity and our equality is centered around the reality of who Christ is and what he's done for us. The image of God theology and its practice is a revolution for every human culture it comes in contact with. The image of God in each human being and the way in which that gives us real dignity and therefore allows for real diversity in humanity. It's the only thing that holds together the uniqueness of each human and the way in which we are one in Christ. Both are held together in the reality of what Jesus does In both restoring life by His resurrection, and then what will happen next week as we reflect on the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, it creates a new humanity. I want us to look this morning at the group gathered together in the upper room, preparing for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and what that tells us about the revolution that Jesus brings. So let's put the text in front of us, Acts chapter 1, 12 through 14. They... Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. We ask this morning, Holy Spirit, as we come into your presence, by your Spirit, by your presence with us, that the word you make alive, the powerful word of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, might continue to be for us a revolution a comfort and an encouragement that we might continue to grow in our knowledge of who you are and who we were created to be. And for all of that, may you receive the glory. And whatever is said this morning that is not true or useful for the building up of your people, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So we've talked about in the past how this hour is the most divided hour in American culture, right? And we usually talk about that in the context of race because there's not a whole lot of racial diversity oftentimes in the American church historically. But I would also raise the idea that it's not just that we're racially divided. We are fundamentally culturally, socially, and ideologically divided, right? There are three Presbyterian churches on this street, we are incredibly divided. We long for the homogeneous principle, which is how can I be with people like me that I might feel at ease and in comfort and at peace? But the question is, is this gathering in the upper room of 120 people emblematic of the way we design churches or the way God would design the fellowship of his people? Because we have an incredibly diverse group of people, not just in the initial 11. And of course, we know that one will be added for the 12. We've talked about that last week. But also in the description of the fact that there are other people in the room who are not officially a part of the apostleship. But nonetheless, you have men and women gathered together in one room, praying together. Not exactly a cultural norm in Jesus' day. And in fact, we know to some degree, not to some degree, not too much speculation, but when they go ahead and pick the 12th, near as I can tell, they don't ask the women to leave, which is interesting. And so we want to say, okay, what is it that is going on in the upper room? Because if it is different than the way we do church in America... We might want to reflect on how it is that Jesus puts together his church and is there a way in which the way we're doing church is not in line with that and may be part of the problem of our interacting in this culture and in this society. The impotency of the church in this culture may be to some degree because we're not engaging in the same way that the upper room and the way the Holy Spirit pours out is indicating that the church is to be built. So who's in the room? Who's in the room? Well, you've got pragmatists, right? Matthew is a pragmatist. Historically, who was Matthew? Matthew was a tax collector. Sure, he was happy to be Jewish. There's no indication that he was anti-Jew. But he was a pragmatist. How do I make money and take care of my family? I'll be a tax collector. He became very wealthy. He was pragmatic in his decisions. Now, does that mean when he became a believer when he started following Jesus, that some of his unique gifts and differences completely disappeared? Don't think so. We don't have a lot of additional information. We know that the first thing he did was throw a party at his house and Jesus went and he invited all of his tax collecting friends. What we know is that Matthew at that point in his life would not have been designated a devout Jew. He was about getting along in this world practically and pragmatically. And yet Jesus includes him in the 12 as one of the symbols of how God will redeem Jerusalem and redeem his people, the people of Israel, and how the city of Shalom becomes again the city of Shalom. Sometimes we wrestle with having pragmatic people in the church. What are the ways in which Their acknowledgement that things need to get done gets in the way of our spirituality. Is there a way in which the pragmatist becomes redeemed in the body of Christ and those gifts are utilized? I've been in more than one situation where the pragmatist, the person who understands how the world works, is driven out of the room to a great degree because he is apparently someone who doesn't believe enough in Jesus, doesn't have enough faith. Taking these steps and guarding these things and evaluating whether or not a particular situation should be moved forward, it gets over-spiritualized all of the sudden. And those folks don't spend a lot of time serving the church. I don't know who the pragmatists would be in our day. Perhaps we might wonder if certain aspects of what we call the liberal church are pragmatists. They they wrestle with the text in a certain way. They see certain challenges of the conservative church and they seek to serve the poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien at the gate to be quote-unquote relevant in the culture. They're pragmatically reaching out. We see this sometimes in our evangelists, which we criticize if they get too fast and loose with theology and we realize, oh, that's too far out. It makes us uncomfortable and we end up having a pragmatic church that's doing certain earthly things. But perhaps we think are not theologically well-grounded enough. There are your classic moderates. Good folks, salt of the earth, right? That's what we call Peter and James and John and Andrew. Fairly devout Jewish folks, not uh, so sold out that they were necessarily Pharisees and running their entire life that way, but certainly sympathetic to and encouraged by Pharisees. Very practical folks. Very committed, looking for the Messiah. Good, faithful church folk. They're in the midst of this. They've been challenged by who Jesus is. But there's a way in which, if you have a church of nothing but those group in, that group in the middle, it kind of stays that group in the middle. Jesus doesn't just select Peter and James and John. As much as he clearly honors their craft and their skills as fishermen, he says, I'm going to make you fisher of, fishers of men. He honors them. He respects them. This is not a question of who's good or who's bad. The question is, is everyone in the room? And there is a reality that the moderates, the folks who are salt of the earth, are in the room. There's also zealots in the room. Religious extremists. So excited about getting it exactly right that they're willing to go to war for it. Right, the zealots are going to be the folks who sort of start the war in AD 66 that ends up with the destruction of the Holy Land. Some climatologists say that when you do the math on what the Romans actually did in Palestine in denuding the land for their siege engines and in their attacks, that they changed the culture, that they changed the climate because there were no more trees. There was nothing there to sort of catch the breeze and catch the dew and the entire climate of the Holy Land changed. That's how significant. No wonder Jesus uses the words he uses in the Gospels to describe what will happen when the Romans come. It destroys the land. The zealots were the ones that uh, were excited about that and started that war. And there is Simon the zealot. So now think about this. In this room, you've got somebody who would have been called a sellout and probably killed just to make a point by Simon and his people. Matthew wasn't terribly a big fan of the zealots. You've got people in the middle trying to live their lives well, longing for freedom to be sure. And Jesus sticks them all in the same group. Is that how we would do it? Is that the way we do church? today and then of course there's the awkwardness that there's the women in the room and they are present and praying there is the reality that mary the mother of jesus who hadn't always always understood what her son was doing the challenge in the gospels is after her amazing magnificat there are several times when, like any human being, she is somewhat unnerved and challenged by what Jesus is doing. The rather awkward text where she and Jesus' brothers try and get him because they're afraid he's gone insane. And so there's restoration. And all of these folks are gathered together in the upper room, waiting for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And again, we will get racial diversity. We'll get the Greeks coming in. Paul's going to come in and, and expand it. and we're, The church is going to be blessed by North Africans who are going to help us understand the Trinity and Athanasius and be the foundation for Reformed theology in Augustine. There is going to be this radical, wonderful diversity in the church that's going to tr- uh, spread over every tribe, every nation, every tongue, But in every culture, there are pragmatists and moderates and zealots. There are men and women, families that have been separated and now gathered together by the power of Christ. There is this fundamental diversity in every culture. And the church, wherever she is placed, is to exemplify, starting from the very beginning... The nature of the way in which Jesus, by his gathering together of the disciples, creates a diverse perspective and emphasis. It is this kind of basis that allows us to have discussions about what it is that is valuable. It's not that Simon had to stop being zealous for the truth of God, but he had to understand it in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Simon the Zealot would have never understood, apart from Jesus' teaching, how his own heart and lusts disqualified him. It wasn't just his outward ability to mirror the law, it was the inward heart issue. It was... Not going to be another pietistic attempt to slap Matthew around that would bring him to the center of who he is. It was only Jesus' preaching on the heart transformation and where real comfort and security comes from. Not from your finances, not from your wealth, not from your ability to manipulate the Romans and power, but from me. To the point where we get Zacchaeus, who doesn't appear to be in this room, but we know as a believer that we will spend time with in heaven, who, in the context of knowing that he's loved by Jesus, gives up everything he has. Effectively repaying everything he's ever stolen, because now he knows what real security is. And the moderates in the middle of it are brought to some rather sobering realizations. Some of Peter's remarks and the disciples' remarks about people from other regions and Samaritans are challenged by some of their salt-of-the-earth views of the other. Peter's going to have to deal with the fact that there is no unclean thing that God made. That Jesus has restored and renewed that and he can go into the house of a Roman without sullying his religious or cultural identity it's going to be transformed it doesn't matter who you are a pragmatist a radical or a moderate your life will be radically transformed when you go into the upper room because the people in that room won't be exactly like you culturally their personalities in all these ways the backgrounds of folks in this room, transform our understanding. The Sermon on the Mount portrays a whole new ethic and a whole new life that includes every kind of person and challenges each one as well as comforting. It is this new humanity that the Spirit is poured out on a few days later. They're unified now not by ideology, not by age, not by race, not by political agenda. They are now unified by the Holy Spirit in Christ. So is the calling then to simply recognize that and try and have friends who have different political or social views or in a different season of life. Because we could try really hard to do that. But chances are that would just create another way in which we thought we were better than other people. We can withdraw and protect ourselves and say that's something for the new heavens and the new earth someday when Jesus comes back. And we don't have to worry about that now. Right now, we just have to worry about staying true and staying safe. And that would seem to be contrary to Jesus' encouragement or the work of the Holy Spirit. And that, of course, is where it rests. You see, if we do it on our own, we do create situations where we find our identity in being right, like Simon the Zealot, theologically pure and right. Or we find it in our identity of being practically right and our love for others and our care for social justice. And we find our identity in that. The reality is that all the way through the book of Acts and all the way through Paul and all the way through the New Testament, the only thing we're supposed to find identity in is Jesus. By the Holy Spirit, led to unpack the implications of the kingdom of God, unified not around our theories, but around his reality and resurrection. It creates a new way for community to move forward. Is it inherently messy? Absolutely. How could you read the New Testament and not get the sense that the kingdom of God is inherently messy? You read Corinthians, you read Galatians. This diversity of population creates a diverse number of problems. But Paul's response is, don't stop meeting together. Lean in, learn, forgive. You see there's a whole way in which the forgiveness of Christ the sacrifice and the willingness to die for others so brilliantly shown and done for us in the cross is then the message and the method by which God's people move forward. We are people of forgiveness. I read a couple of commentaries that said can you look at Cultures where there is no forgiveness, where there is just social pride and status, where losing honor or losing face is the highest concern that one has. What do you have? You have honor killings. My daughter embarrassed me because she slept with somebody outside of wedlock. What do we do? Kill her. What is that based on? It's not based on morality. It's based on me being shamed. How do I restore my honor in the culture? I fix the problem. But cultures based in forgiveness all of a sudden get messy. They get messy in a good way. Because there's a way in which we have to extend forgiveness to the other. I actually lose face. I'm actually willing to not defend my pride. I don't have to be right. I don't have to win. I can forgive. I can be in a gracious setting that's run by a different set of ethics defined by forgiveness and patience and gentleness and self-control, by the fruit of the Spirit. A community in ever greater degrees impacted by the richness of the fruit of the Spirit is going to be a community far more diverse in background, in setting, and culture, it sneaks up on us. We think we're doing things wisely. There were jobs that I couldn't apply for, I was told not to apply for, and this isn't about me, it's just the way things sneak up on us. Because I didn't have my kids in Christian school. And people would wonder what would happen if you had that as a pastor, not reaffirming that view and sending us. It was an honest question. That's going to create a rather narrow congregation. If you had a certain view in certain places in the South about integration and interracial dating, there are certain jobs you just don't bother applying for. We could go through the different ways in which within the American church we have created either cultural or social norms that we want to have reaffirmed in each other in such a way that to have others engaged in the community, we might find unnerving or unraveling to our views. And that's going to be problematic if you look at who's in the upper room. Because the notion that somehow now Matthew and Simon and Peter agreed on all ways in which they should interact and the implications of what Jesus was preaching about and what happens in the Holy Spirit denies the uniqueness of that humanity. And if the world out there thinks that when you become a Christian, you stop being different and you adopt a particular culture and worldview for that particular congregation, they might not be encouraged to be a part of it because they may not know where, if there's any room for them. For a difference in thought or questioning, as if all points were orthodox, as if all issues might cause me to lose my salvation, do we really think that God's truth is that breakable? You see, the beauty of this, I would contend, is that when you put women and men and different cultures and different societies into the same room and start praying, The Holy Spirit moves. It is the richness of that difference. It is the power of what Jesus gathers together. Brought together in prayer and dependence upon the Holy Spirit that moves the wheel of history that changes culture from the ground up without ever picking up a sword, without ever having to declare anything other than than their love for one another and their love for Christ. And in their actions and in their words, the world changes. It is in that dependency upon the love of Christ as modeled, but also the recognition that we live as those who are sacrificial for the needs of others, often people we disagree with in caring for them, that became the hallmark of who Jesus is, And who his church is. And so as we think about what's going to happen next week. As we reflect and rejoice in the reality of Pentecost. The question is who did the Holy Spirit bind together? And what happens when the Holy Spirit bound them together? Do we appreciate the richness and diversity that Luke bothered to write all of these names down? Individual people from their diverse backgrounds brought into a room to prepare for one of the most amazing events in human history, probably the second most amazing after the resurrection in Easter Sunday, Pentecost. What an exciting day. And may we again continue as God's people to be known as people not only of the resurrection, but the day the Spirit was poured out and people were unified, people were gathered together, And people prayed and God moved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful, gracious to the preaching of your word. We ask that you would again bless the richness of who we are in you in each one of our backgrounds. Lord, some of the stories in this room come from so many wonderful and sometimes challenging places. It is the richness of that diversity and perspective on life that allows us to come together in this place and pray for you to work and act in a fashion that grows all of us and glorifies the richness of who you are. We pray that we would, again, delight in that. In Christ's name, amen.